Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast, here with the Raised with Jesus podcast series. And uh, my name is Jeremy Lightman. I'm here with my co-host, Pastor Michael Zarling. And our guest today is Pastor Eric Melso of Chattanooga, Tennessee. He's a pastor at Living Hope, and uh, we welcome him today. Welcome, Pastor Melso. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be on the show. Looking forward to it. So, Eric, if you want to tell us about your whole mission experience being there, because for our listeners, I also was assigned to a home mission in Radcliffe, Kentucky, that was 29 years ago. I was there eight years for a brand new mission with starting with like 15 members. So tell us about your home mission experience. Yeah, going on um, almost six years now. It'll be six years this July since uh, I was assigned here out of the seminary. So yeah, I guess quite a bit has happened. Um, I think actually, yeah, Michael, you said you had about 15 people. That's, that's probably pretty close to what we started with as a core group here. Uh, maybe... It was about a dozen adults, I think, if you counted Jennifer and myself, my wife and myself. And uh, it was the third year that they had been, this core group here in Chattanooga had been asking for a pastor. So uh, for the first couple of years, they kind of got turned down by the mission board saying, we'd like to see a little bit more um, going on there. Another better reason to start one in Chattanooga. There's enough other places that were more attractive at the time. So lucky number three on the third try, they they got a pastor and uh I'm glad it was me. It's been a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, I guess uh, the first first year, and and this is probably a difference from how they used to do it back. Uh, you said 29 years ago. Yes, Michael. Yeah. So I maybe they maybe it was the same, but they had us kind of take almost a full year of kind of gearing up before we did our grand opening and every single week Sunday services. We did a lot of um, we called them preview services. It'd be like once a month, open to the public. Um, but before even we did preview services, it was just meeting in our little rental house with the core group and uh, mostly just doing uh, discussions, Bible studies on what does it look like to start a new church. And uh, I needed their help just as much because I had never done it either, didn't know much about it. So uh, we kind of just met on Saturdays and talked a lot, thought about ways to reach out, and then went and did some of the reaching out. Um, one of the really unique things we got to do that I, I had never really done in my life was on the Sundays we weren't meeting to do a little worship service with our group. We, uh, my wife and I would go to different denominations in the city here and we would just all kinds of different churches, big ones, small ones, ones in movie theaters, some in a little A-frame church and just kind of uh, get the vibe. What are people hearing in Chattanooga? What does worship look like? And uh, that really helped us, I think, be informed for what we wanted to do at Living Hope for for worship and just uh, the style of church we wanted to be um, and keeping our Lutheran heritage, of course. So that was that was a really unique thing that we learned a lot from, for sure. I'm um, getting to other churches and uh, <laughs> saw some interesting services, some really good ones, some very confusing, some downright really weird. So <laughs> that was one of the fun things in the beginning there. I feel like I've seen you on a have you ever been on a video like a Wells Connection or a Wells promotional video? Let's see. Um, I don't know if we ever made it on Wells Connection yet, but uh, I was definitely on the Taste of Missions. They had a different like moments with missionaries. I know that's that's one thing I've done. That might have so, been where I saw you. 
that might have I, been I did that too, actually, once what you were talking about when I first uh, I had last served at a parish in Kansas and they were having, because of their vacancy, worship was in uh, like at four o'clock in the afternoon. And so I thought I would try that just to see what are other churches and town doing. And I didn't get up as early as I'd wanted to. I wanted to, you know, start at 8 a.m. or 7.45 or something. But uh, I think I got to see like a Presbyterian and a Catholic and uh, maybe that was about it. But um, it is interesting to see what the rest of Christendom, how they, what they do on a Sunday morning. Yeah, especially, um, again, you talk about the South here. For me, I had lived in Florida growing up, but it's, that's, you know, they tell you that's not the South. That doesn't count. Um, so kind of get into the, the culture of the South and just see, I mean, it's, yeah, Baptist church on every corner. We've got a lot of Seventh-day Adventists. Actually, they have a big university right right outside of town here. So just a lot of different flavors of Christianity and uh, not a whole lot of Lutherans. We're the only, well, not only are we the only Wells Church, we're the only Lutheran church of any kind um, on the whole east side of town. So no one knows what a Lutheran is. That, that the early days, we'd knock on doors and do a little survey. And, you know, one of the questions to kind of get to the the quick law gospel presentation was, what do you know about Lutherans? And most people just say, oh, Dr. Martin Luther King. I mean, if you say, hey, you know, we like him, but yeah, actually think white German guy, kind of different. But um, we, <laughs> at we first I thought you were going to say people. At first, I thought you were going to say you knocked on doors to show them what Martin Luther did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's, that's a little different, Eric, than here in Racine, where uh, the next Lutheran church, ELCA, is within walking distance. And uh, I, I talked to my members just recently when I had held a call to Modesto, California, and telling them that there's an hour distance between that church and the nearest Wells Church. And I said, I can bike to about four of our Wells Churches uh, just in you know within an hour so uh if you want to inform our, our listeners on this i think it's interesting what you said before about why you would wait a year to have worship because that's not something that we did 29 years ago and part of that was our situation is that i was called because our the members at faith had already established a congregation they had met first in a bank and did Bible studies. Then they met in a rented hair salon. You could still smell the hairspray on Sunday mornings, they said. They held worship services that way. Then they rented a storefront next to a pawn shop, and they held worship services that way through the phone by calling up the, the pastor up in, in Louisville at, Hope, at Lutheran Church up there. And so they were used to having worship services and even if I would have suggested not doing worship services, I don't think it would have gone well. So why, because it sounds so antithetical to the way we do things, that Lutherans love to worship. So why would you not have worship for a year? Yeah, and I, I think it is sometimes maybe a polarizing thing. And I know some of maybe the people that have started missions in the past said, but how, how are you doing that? Uh, why would you do that? And I don't know, um, we, we kind of, found a lot of benefit in pouring literally 100% of our time into doing outreach, getting in the community, meeting people. And uh, you didn't have to prepare a sermon every single week. And obviously, you want to put time into that. And uh, 
we we just found there was so much time that we got to spend doing. We did a lot of uh, canvassing, knocking on doors because we first got there and said, I don't I don't really know what else to do. Let's just go knock on doors. I know how to do that. And we started with that and uh, found a few more folks that were interested, kind of get them on the on the ground floor of starting the church um, from the community. And yeah, it it was nice, though, by the time we got to I think it was Easter. Yeah. Easter of 2018. It was our first public service that we did and we did it in a little hotel conference room and uh, we were definitely ready by then it was kind of nice that by the time we were ready to start our preview services it was clear it was time because you start to realize okay there's people that want to that want to get involved and we've done enough time building up this kind of core group and meeting more people our age we did a lot of um going to community events doing uh sports leagues and stuff i know that sounds like Really, that's that's outreach, and, and it really was. It was uh, it was awesome meeting a lot of people. We did this thing called running for brews. You would go downtown, run a run a five k, come back, get some some cheap beers or discounted beers at the place you ran from, and then you just sit and talk with people. And we met a bunch of people our age that ended up joining the church. That you couldn't make it up. It was just like putting yourself out there, and then God would just here's a person that's looking for a Lutheran church in Chattanooga, like. Oh, and I'm having a beer next to this guy now. Like, how could that have gone any better? Um, so that, I mean, that was really, really fun to be able to do that for a good eight, well, seven or eight months before we had our preview services really up and running. It gave us time to, to we didn't have a name for our church. We didn't have a logo. We had nothing. We had to look for a spot to worship in publicly. So having that time and setting up all your um, incorporation files, all that, man, it was so beneficial. It worked really well for us um, to have that time to do that. So yeah, I, I think I don't know if that's maybe maybe it's not the right fit for every new mission start, but for us it was definitely beneficial. Yeah. So did you find when 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 you talk about those prospects that you gathered and people that you ran into uh, that are now members of your church, like what kind of a field were you working with? Were, were you finding people who were de-churched or had some kind of church background or disenfranchised with a church or or did you find people that were honest to goodness um you know raised secular or atheist and what what tell me about that yeah um maybe should have started with this too you know I, i think the week i think it was the week we got here we moved here one of our core group members brought me a newspaper and on the front page it said chattanooga is still the buckle uh, meaning it's the buckle of the Bible belt. And it, the article is about how Chattanooga is the most church city in the United States. And we had just moved there to start a church. Like, wait, what? <laughs> but that that has really played into what we've been finding is because it's the most church city, apparently, or it was, it's also now become like the most de-churched city because there's so many people that have left the church. And so by far the most amount of people we are reaching aren't like pure atheists or agnostics, but people who have been burnt by the church, gone to a different denomination and didn't like it and then just kind of fell away. So we had a ton of de-church and we kind of have almost moved our ministry to reach de-churched people, um, bring them hope, restore their hope in God and the church. And it was kind of, that's how it started, getting the de-churched or even people that were like de-Lutherans, I guess you would say. They used to be Lutherans and then moved and there's no Lutheran option. And they fell away and they said, wait, actually, I'd, I'd want to come to yours if it's Lutheran. Um, and then it was almost like two or three years after that. Now we've started to get a lot of, I mean, people that 
gotten baptized, didn't know anything about really the Bible or Jesus. And it was kind of um, not that way in the beginning. And I don't know what changed, but definitely still today, it's mostly de-churched folks uh, here in the in the South, in the buckle of the Bible belt, I would say. Yeah. Where have you, uh, with your church starting, where have you worshipped? And then where are you worshipping now? Yeah, similar to yours, where we've met in, I mean, I, lose, I lose count, seven different places, maybe. Um, we started, obviously, in my my little rental house. We met in there until we got into Regal Cinemas, a movie theater. They even have a whole branch where they work with churches. We had a li- liaison who, um, the guy used to be a, a Missouri Synod pastor, so he kind of knew what we were going for. It's kind of nice. Um, we were in there up till COVID kicked us out. It was working really well. We had our big grand opening in there. We'd have people showing up on Sunday mornings and there'd still be kind of movies playing in some of the other auditoriums. And so they'd see me there in my suit and tie and they'd like come up like, hey, uh, I'm supposed to see this movie. Which one do I go to? And I'd like, yep, number six right over there. And they'd go in there like, this is not a movie. Um, so it's kind of cool just to get people walking in. We had the big, you know, reclining chairs. So I even thought about adding it into the liturgy one time, just like, the congregation may now recline and then you just hear the as everyone kind of goes back. Um, there was one older guy that fell asleep. I mean, every time, and I don't blame him just comfy, comfy chairs. Um, so we were in there up till COVID and our goal is to be in the movie theater till we bought land or a building and COVID changed that. So then we were out of my office for a while, just all online. We had to be, cause we had no spot. Um, from there we went back into a hotel conference room I mean, from there after a while they kind of upped our price too much so we went into a, a seventh-day adventist chapel over at their university which was on like the second floor it was really hard to find it was not ideal but it was 100 bucks a month and at that point we were already kind of working to be under contract on buying an existing church building which we're in right now um so we we bought this building we're in now back in december 2021 and it's uh, it was kind of just like God did it for us. I don't know how else to answer it. We were really, really worried about finding a spot because we were kind of growing out of the, the hotel conference room. All the leasing spaces we were looking at for a 24-7 space were like way too expensive, way too small. You'd still have to renovate it into a church space. And then all of a sudden, God plopped this existing church building into our laps. Uh, we bought it for $1.2 million. And that's after COVID even. So that was, I mean, that's phenomenal. And it's, uh, it used to be an auto service center. It got renovated into a call center after that. And then a different church came in and renovated that into a church building. So by the time we bought it, six days later, we had worship in it because it was already set up to be a church. And it's uh, not everyone what I pictured having as a church one day when I was, you know, first getting to be a pastor. It's uh, from the outside, pretty pretty bland. It looks like an office front. We're going to be doing some renovations here within the coming year to put a cross up, make it look much nicer. And uh, inside though, just amazing. It's a very um, modern yet sacred kind of space, I would call it. A big gathering area, kind of got a a, a coffee bar feel when you first walk in and then a kind of more linear um, surrounding type worship space that looks towards the altar and um, so it's it's worked really well for us. It's been great to get our presence in the community. And I even got a, a guy in the Air Force who um, he was big on saying, you know, that 
let's not look at this as a, a fortress, a castle, like, oh, now we've made it. Now we can come in here and hold up in our fortress that we built, but it's a forward operating base. Now we finally got our command center to go out and really do the work full time. And I thought that is, that is awesome. What a good illustration for a new mission church planting somewhere. So yeah, did you have to, it's kind of the story you, of our facility. Did you have to take out the baptistry and then put in a Lutheran baptismal font? <laughs> so yeah, the church that was in here, they were a Pentecostal type group. Uh, if you heard of the vineyard, they're bigger down South here. And uh, so they didn't have a baptistry, but they did have, I mean, <coughs> their whole uh, band up there on the stage, they had melted candle wax all over. And we just said, simplify, simplify. So we've got, got it looking much nicer in my opinion up there now um but yeah they they kind of i think stabbed themselves in the foot with uh their covid policies and they ended up alienating all their older members who were their givers and so they they were bleeding money bleeding members they had to get rid of this building so we kind of got the best benefit of that so their loss was definitely our gain are you married do you have kids yep got a uh, my wife uh, Jennifer, and we do have two daughters, so a four-year-old, Natalie, and then a uh, daughter, Annabelle, who's going to turn two this July, so definitely keep us busy. It's fun. <laughs> Very good. So going back to when you were canvassing and you didn't have a name or logo, did you canvas and then ask the neighbors, you know, kind of an excuse to go and talk to them on what they were looking for in a church and help you pick out a name and everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was kind of the perfect way to, let's say, whatever we're going to do, let's make it outreach community oriented. So even our name, we thought, let's, if we're going to choose a name, let's have the community help us choose it because they're the ones we want to have coming to it. So we, I think we had a list of five names that we ended up with. Um, again, lots of churches in Chattanooga. There's only a few names that weren't taken. <laughs> We found five good ones, and uh, Living Hope was by far the uh, most picked one by the community. I mean, it had to be over 70% of our votes that we took in was for Living Hope, and people gave good reasons, like, I, we just need hope these days, and um, we think that maybe you could bring it to us. So, like, yeah, we'll do Living Hope. We did the same thing with our logo then, ended up with a cool little, like, tree logo thing. Um, some of our other options, all the ones that I thought were good were awful, um, we thought, oh, hope has an anchor for the soul, that passage from Hebrews uh, 6, I think it is. And so we had this anchor and then, uh, well, it's living hope. So we put like a vine wrapping around. I thought, that, oh, that speaks the whole thing right here. But then people would come by our booth we had at a festival one time. And one guy's like, yeah, that that anchor looks like the devil's horns, like looks intimidating. And then another guy said, uh, yeah, that vine wrapped around it kind of looks like kudzu, the really kudzu. <laughs> kudzu i should say kudzu yeah, yeah. the invasive kudzu, asian yeah. weed that's all over here so i'm like oh so apparently all these are just awful and everyone liked the tree and uh i'm glad we went with that it's it was definitely the best one so yeah you know when we were looking for names for our merged church from epiphany and new hope i suggested saint michael and all angels but you know <laughs> for some reason they didn't that one got voted down didn't stick yeah yeah so, Jeremy, you want to get into the gospel lesson? Gospel is from John 14, beginning with verse 15. Jesus, on the night before he died, is saying this to his disciples. If you love me, hold on to my commands. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. 
He is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. You know him because he stays with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little, in a little while, the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. The, only, the one who has my commands and holds on to them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I too will love him and show myself to him. Jesus tells his disciples, if you love me, hold on to my commands. Uh, now I'm reading your question. Okay. <laughs> Whoops. That's all right. So, uh, Eric, you know, Jesus tells his disciples, if you love me, hold on to my commands. What does he mean by this? Yeah, it's interesting. Even uh, you look at like different English translations kind of had a different take on it. I think uh, you read the EHV there, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, yes. had hold on there. Uh, you know, some of them had obey. And, uh, I, you know, actually, I do really like that idea of hold on because um, it has a little bit more of a nuance of it's our attitude toward God's commands and not just about, like, how well we do keeping them. You know, I'm, I'm holding on to his law, whether or not I'm good at keeping it. I, I hold on to it and treasure it in my heart. I wonder if that has something to do with it. I kind of like that take on it anyway. Yeah, and what I was thinking there is just, how we show love and the way you show love, you know, as a kid to his parents might be picking up his room, walking the dog, taking out the trash, being nice to the siblings and so forth as a way to show love and respect to the parents by obeying the commands. And that's one of the things that Jesus demonstrates here for us is saying, Hey, this is how you show love to my father as his children by doing what he commands. Mm -hmm. Jeremy, Jesus says that he'll give his disciples help in obeying his commands by sending them a counselor. Who is this counselor and how is he going to help and counsel Jesus' disciples of all ages? The counselor is another name for the Holy Spirit. He's the, and another way to translate this word would be the encourager. And uh, he, I think it's important to remember, first of all, that... The Holy Spirit was promised to these particular disciples of Jesus because they were the ones who were going to write the New Testament. And uh, that gives us assurance to know that it's really God talking when we read the Bible because Jesus promised them this counselor who would guide them and breathe the very words in, into their hearts and minds and into their pens that they wrote with uh, so that we know it's God's word today. And then uh, for us today, uh, that counselor still comes to us through that written word. And uh, that is um, the way that he that uh, he offers that encouragement to disciples of all ages. Yeah, the Greek word here for counselor helper is paraclete. And the note that the EHV has on this is a paraclete refers to someone who is needed at the moment for admonition, comfort, guidance, and so on. So that 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 title might be an advocate, a defender in the court. And it's interesting that John, who's there listening to Jesus talk about the paraclete later on in his epistle, uh, the second chapter, he says, my children, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So John 
says that Jesus in heaven is our advocate. Jesus on earth talking to John and the other disciples says that the Holy Spirit is our advocate, our counselor, our encourager. Uh, and then like Jeremy said, the way that both of them do that is through the word. Uh, if you want to add anything to that, Eric. I think you said it well. Um, I, I think it's cool too that, right? Like we've got the full legal spread here coming for us. We've got the counselor and, and Jesus then, I mean, getting to the, the greatest part here that not only is the Holy Spirit with us, Jesus says he's in us too. So it's kind of cool. Like we've got the Holy Spirit and Jesus, who's we think of him as our kind of our defense attorney as well. The one who then also gives the verdict of the judge, not guilty. So it's kind of cool that we've got the whole thing rigged in our favor. So then Eric, throughout his ministry, Jesus had been confronted by people who did not know, meaning they didn't believe in him. Jesus told the disciples that they would face the same problem. Why does Jesus say that those in the world will oppose him and his followers? Yeah. Um, I was thinking of that, uh, that kind of well-known phrase from Friedrich Nietzsche, who said those who dance are considered mad uh, by those who cannot hear the music. And it's easy to make fun of or to, to belittle someone when you can't, like, I can't see what's, why, why would they do these things? Why are they so obsessed with this Jesus thing? Um, and yet for those of us who have faith, I mean, when, for those of us who hear the music, it's so beautiful. The good news is so wonderful. You can't help dancing to it, uh, finding your whole life in it. But those who don't hear the music, who don't have the Holy Spirit in them, it's just going to sound like nonsense and foolishness. So there's a big difference there between the believer and the, and the unbeliever. That's going to cause animosity at times. So Jeremy, uh, you know, you and I have been doing this with for about two years of guests. I think that might be the first time we've had someone quote Nietzsche on this podcast. <laughs> I went there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That so was, that was a good quote. I, I was, I was bracing myself for what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, that was, that was a good one. I like that. So I then Jeremy, I hope I'm right. Yeah. Uh, so then, Jeremy, and I think Eric, Eric, you can answer this next uh, same question. Where do you encounter, where do we as Christians encounter the world who does not know or receive Jesus? Who's that directed at? First you and then Eric. Um, I, I suppose it's, honestly, it's really easy to not let that happen. Uh, we, it, you don't have to go to a monastery to become a monk or a nun. Uh, I, I just think in my own life how like all of my friends, all of my circle of acquaintances or social social people that I know or whatever is uh, they're all in the church. And uh, I, yeah, I don't know if this is directly from a part of the text or not, but um, it is uh, it's a good thing to discuss. And uh, I don't know if I have a good answer for it. Um, I think it, a lot of it is getting out of your comfort zone, um, forcing yourself to meet new people and uh, put yourself in social situations where you're going to meet new people. And I bet Eric would actually be a lot better at talking about that than you or I. 
No, I, I mean, I think where you were going with that is exactly what I would have thought too. It's just where, where do you encounter the world that doesn't know or receive Jesus? I mean, it's yeah, everywhere now, um, probably next door or at least down the street a little bit. Um, people who aren't pastors, you have a workplace, you know, probably in your workplace, most of the people, I, I can't remember where I read it either, but uh, it was a while back. I read something about almost thinking of Christianity in America as like, it's almost as if everyone's had the, the uh, Jesus inoculation where it's like, you've got just enough, we know just enough about Jesus. It's kind of been a fabric of, of the country for long enough that people I think think they know about Jesus or they know everything that there is to know about Christianity. And they probably don't like, they probably don't actually know the gospel. And so it's like, if we can be that, that clarifier, that light that says, I, I think you missed the point or you, maybe you think, you know what Jesus is all about, but let me tell you what he's actually all about. And that, ties in a lot with that de-churched thing. I think people think they've, they've, oh, I know how this goes, Christianity, the Bible, but maybe they need to be hearing it again in a new light, a, a better light. You know, and with this question, I would think, I was thinking too of several weeks ago, I was here at church and I was on my bike and I was getting ready to bike home in the afternoon. And then just then, uh, so this would have been a Monday afternoon someone was walking by the, the church driveway and he stopped me and said, Hey, do you work here? And I said, yeah, kind of. And he goes, are you the pastor? I wasn't dressed as a pastor because I was in biking clothes. And he, and I said, yeah. And I took off my helmet and he was just out canvassing the neighborhood because the next day would be, uh, we'd be voting on aldermen and so forth. And so he started talking about this guy that was running for alderman. And then he called that guy over who was on the other side of the street and the guy came and talked to me for a good 10 minutes, just uh, different political things and how the church fits in and so forth. And I said goodbye. And then he said, oh, hey, since I have you, Pastor, what do you, how do I answer this question when I'm knocking on doors when it comes to abortion? And he said, you know, I think it's abortion is, is bad unless it's for rape or incest. And I just did a gospel presentation in the church parking lot about abortion and life issues and the other two men that were can canvassing with him they came and they helped me i didn't really need the help but it was good to have lay people saying the exact same thing that i was saying to this gentleman and and i told him in the end i said when you tell people you're not for any abortion not for rape or incest you know any of that they're going to come down hard on you but then you tell them I'd rather give up a political position than uh, cease a child murdered. And then you, you tell him, I stand for life. Therefore, you can trust me in everything. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's really good. But it's just like Jeremy was saying, sometimes you have to put yourself out there. Sometimes God puts you out there because I was not planning on ha having a 15-minute conversation on abortion in the church parking lot. But uh, this was someone who tangentially i think he's he said he was kind of unchurched too or dechurched because he said to me hey pastor uh you know when's a good time to talk to you i said well i'm here a lot you can just knock on the door or, or i'll give you my card but you know what i'm here every sunday morning and he goes ah oh, i see what you did there that was good uh eric the spirit would remind the disciples of everything jesus said to them why is that a promise that's a great comfort for us today. 
I guess first of all, because it's a lot to remember. <laughs> like, oh wait, he's he's gone now. We got to think about everything he said and did. And you know, John even wrote, yeah, there's there's not enough books in the world to fill it with with all the words that we could write about this. But uh, yeah, especially for us, um, brings comfort that I, I think like the disciples they end up knowing more and understanding. I should say understanding more of what Jesus had come to do after he had already ascended to heaven. I think they kind of understood it better after he he left them and went back to heaven. And that means like, Hey, well, if the disciples ended up knowing it, what it all meant after Jesus was already not with them personally, well, then that could be the same for us that we, we can know everything we need to know as well. And again, tying back to the Holy spirit revealed through the word um, that gives us everything we need to know. So I think that's a cool comfort for us and how it came to the disciples same way for us. And there, I think too, two chapters later, uh, Jesus kind of reiterates this, and uh, he says, I am telling you the truth. It's good for you that I go away. For if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he'll not speak on his own, but whatever he hears, he'll speak. He will also declare to you what is to come. So he's kind of reminding them of what he just said, you know, uh, probably half an hour earlier in this teaching in this chapter, uh, they're saying, unless the Holy Spirit, unless I leave and I can only be in one place at one time, the Holy Spirit's not coming. But the Holy Spirit, he's going to be uh, in all of your hearts and in the word. So, Jeremy, what great comfort is there in Jesus' words when he promises, I'll not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. It reminds us that he is, uh, we are on his mind. Okay. <laughs> you want to add to anything to that? or is that... Uh, I, I do. I just didn't want to have the uh, loudspeaker for our school here. Okay. Cutting in on our podcast or paging people to go to certain rooms. Um, so uh, I don't know. I think about orphans and I think about what's it like to be one. I, I guess I can't say for sure because I was raised with both parents. Um, but I would imagine that uh, you could relate to the feeling of um, not fitting in or being abandoned, uh, feeling maybe feeling betrayed by your family members. And uh, that that is a, a temptation, I think, that, um, that I, I remember not too long ago talking to a, a student who talked about her dad being angry at God. And um, I, I didn't say, well, shame on him, shame on him. He needs to fix that. Um, that does need fixing. But but that is a very natural thing for humans to do is to think that God has abandoned me or that God is let me down in some way. And uh, so we need that reminder that, and no, you're not orphans. And uh, Jesus is coming back to prove that. So when I hear that word orphan, you know, I, I think of then orphan Annie, you know, the movie and daddy Warbucks and so forth. And, you know, it was a good movie and so forth, but I'll be honest with you guys that I've always had a little problem with that movie because I have two younger sisters and when uh, we didn't go to movies very often when we were kids. And so my mom said one day, Hey, let's go, let's go to the movies. It was at the mall at the theater. And 
but you have a choice of going to see Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, or Little Orphan Annie. Well, since I got outvoted by my two sisters, we had to go. I miss seeing Star Wars, you know, The Empire Strikes Back for the movie. Is and you know, uh, forty years later, I'm I'm not not over it yet. <laughs> Uh, but with this, too, building on what Jeremy was saying, uh, you know, Jesus says, I'm coming back to you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans, uh, that we know that Jesus is going to come back physically and visibly on the last day. But I think as Lutherans, we also understand he's coming back to us uh, visibly or invisibly and humbly through the means of grace, through the gospel and our word and sacraments. Eric, I was wondering a question on that, actually. So, like, would it be accurate to say this, uh, that right now, Jesus is here where we are, but one day we will be there where he is? Right. Is that accurate or is that too much of a circular? No, I like that. You know, because you just said, I'm going to take you to be with me where I am a little earlier in our previous week's reading. Um, kind of cool to think you know, he's here. One day we're going to be right with him, too even though you could say he's with us right now. It's a weird circular reasoning, but. Yeah. And that's like what I was stressing about being Lutheran is, I don't know, you know, you've got a lot of different non-Lutheran church bodies there in Chattanooga. Where, where are they on the means of grace, Eric? Yeah. Um, Lutheranism is definitely unique um, when it comes to the means of grace. And yeah, I mean, you can't, being a Lutheran, you can't read these words here without just seeing, the means of grace dripping out of them here. But uh, yeah, def definitely among a lot of the denominations that are prevalent down here, especially Baptist, um, you know, that uh, diff very different view of the means of grace. I'm even thinking of one time we walked in, uh, we, we came out of a um, church that was meeting in a movie theater since we knew we wanted to meet in a movie theater at that point. We said, let's go see how someone else does it and how they set it up. It was a non-denominational one. And on the way out, um, the pastor said, well, we have communion on the way out today. And I thought, okay, well, what, what's that going to be? They, say, they said, just, just grab communion on your way out of the, out of the church. Mm. And, uh, you know, no words of institution, nothing else. That was it. And as we walked out, we saw a little uh, tray there with, it was like chicken biscuit crackers and jelly. And you dipped the cracker in there and then ate it. And they took everything in my my body not to like tell the people that were walking by like guys this isn't this isn't the lord's supper you're being lied to and it's like okay just settle down man this isn't the place to do this but it was like just it, it enhanced for me too like wow we need to teach the lord's supper um and show the biblical reasonings why we have even things like close communion more than ever just having gone to different churches it's a very unique thing but i think how much more comfort there is hearing the words of jesus knowing this is his body and blood um, assurance of forgiveness rather than having that snack on the way out of church. Like we've got a pretty cool thing. Um, it's worth telling people about. Two things on that, you know, talking about, you know, that meal, one of the things I'm going to be doing next year in inviting people like our school families to take my adult confirmation class, then I'm going to shorten to 10 lessons. I'll tell them, Hey, if you, finish the first five lessons, I'll give you a gift card to one of our local restaurants. But if you finish all 10 lessons, then you get invited to an even better meal, you know, the Lord's Supper. Uh, 
And but with that too, Eric, I'm just curious. Uh, I know what we did in our storefront. We were able to have a little uh, someone's punch bowl, the very fancy crystal bowl, on our altar that we used for baptism until someone made a baptismal font. My my oldest daughter Abby was the first child baptized in that font, and then we had communion. We all stood there because uh, you didn't have a communion rail and so forth. So how did you do baptism and communion in the movie theater or, or in your, in your uh, office at home or, and so forth, all the different places that you worshiped? Yeah, we actually, we were pretty blessed. We got a uh, baptismal bowl donated from uh, Peace Lutheran church in Aiken, South Carolina. They gave us a nice little bowl. Um, and then we actually had all our communion set was donated. Like before we even had worship, um, really nice, like barely used. So we actually already had that all set up. And so by the time we had, we had it in the movie theater for a while there, we did communion just once a month. We had so many new people coming in and gave us extra time to teach people um, what it's all about before joining. And uh, we've moved on to doing it twice a month now, but um, we, we did it pretty similarly. I actually had to be on a little stage up in the front of the movie theater. We had to have that as part of our church in a box deal. We called it church in a box, came in a trailer, you set it up. But uh, we, so kind of almost worked out that people came up to the edge of the this kind of staging there. Just so I was raised up higher. They could see me over the chairs and then I would just be able to give communion as people came forward. So it was pretty, uh, pretty normal as far as that goes. And then baptisms too. We had a kind of a wooden stand that also got donated from a different church that we kind of put our baptismal bowl on. Um, we did have, this is pretty cool. We, you know, in the height of COVID, we didn't even have a church to meet in at that point. We had a guy that was totally, totally new to the faith, totally new to the Bible. And he got baptized on Easter Sunday in 2020. And so we we kind of like, well, let's make this, let's share this with everyone on Easter Sunday. So I went over to the, his apartment, baptized him there on his kitchen table with a bowl. And then we recorded it. And then we added that clip into our live stream service on Easter Sunday. So like, that was kind of a cool thing. And I mean, tons of people saw it, you know, all the people watching online. Um, so I guess we got creative that way, but otherwise it was, it's been pretty, pretty straightforward the way we've done it. Okay. So then Eric, what comfort is ours when Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. Yeah. I can't help, but just think, wow, resurrection. Um, that's what this is referring to here. Um, and then the disciples were going to need that very soon to have that assurance. Oh yeah. Jesus is alive. That means we're going to live. And it's, a lot tying back to what he said in the previous verses, I am the way and the truth and the life, thinking not just our eternal life, our future life in heaven, but even right now. I mean, he's given us life and given it us, given it to us in the full. So it's uh, the best life we could live is because Jesus lives. Yeah, pretty cool. So Pastor Zarling, I was just wondering, how can Jesus say that in that day you will know that I'm in my father and you are in me and I in you? Yeah, uh, that's one of these really difficult teachings of, you know, the, the, about the Trinity, you know, about the Holy Spirit that's together with the Father and the Son. And I, whenever we get these questions, I like going back to the Athanasian Creed. We're close to the Trinity Sunday. I'm not going to quote any of the Athanasian Creed here, uh, but for our listeners, just to, to read it, cherish it on that Trinity Sunday, that one time in the year that we pull it out, dust it off, and uh, and use it. Uh, and what 
what Jesus is saying here is that the Holy Spirit's already at work in the disciples' hearts. That's why they're they're believers. But he's also talking about, and Jeremy mentioned this before, about that special outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's going to be coming on Pentecost. But that whole union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I just taught this last week about the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, the Father's work is primarily creating and preserving. The Son's work is primarily redeeming. The Holy Spirit's work is primarily sanctifying. But then I asked, is that the only, are those the only things that each person does or each person in the Trinity? And it was kind of a trick question to say, that's primarily what they do, but they're also united. So they each take over another portion of that work. Sometimes the, the, the son is doing some of that sanctification works and sees in our heart and so forth. So I don't know if you guys want to add anything to that. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm always kind of blown away by that, this whole section here, just because it's it's like just showing the intimate connection we have with the whole Trinity. Because um, you've got like Jesus saying, I'm in the Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. So it's kind of like, I, I've thought about like, how would I diagram that? And you can't. It's like one of those uh, situations where you're looking at a mirror, and there's also a mirror behind you. It's like the infinity mirror. And then you add in two, he just said the spirit's in you too. So it's just like, wow, we are, I mean, we are tied in with God, the Trinity. And that's a pretty powerful thing Jesus is saying here. Hard to wrap my mind around. Yeah, what I taught to this this couple as a member and then his hus- her husband that uh, as we were studying the Trinity, I just said, if anyone comes to you and ever tries to give you an analogy or illustration of the Trinity, you know they're wrong. You cannot <laughs> do that. Okay. So, Eric, uh, usually we don't ask uh, the preachers this, but I know you uh, – emailing back and forth, you said you were going to be preaching on this text. So this is one of those texts that's really hard for me to wrap my head around. Uh, I, I think I can write the questions to ask for Bible study or something like this, but it's really hard for me to c- kind of uh, put together into one cohesive sermon. I'm not preaching on this text. Obviously, I'm preaching on the one for next Sunday. So where are you going with this sermon? Because this is tough. Yeah. I mean, again, there's like seven sermons here. So I, I kind of focused in on what I thought was like the most comforting verse here where it's, uh, I will not leave you as orphans because I think he kind of expounds on that before that statement. He's talking about, right. I'm not leaving you because I'm sending the counselor. And then after that, he says, I'm in you. I'm in the father. The father's with you too, by extension, because I'm with you. I just think that was maybe the, the middle statement to bring both those things together. And I know, um, you know, if you're looking at the foundation thing that uh, Wells Congregational Services put out, they kind of took it a different direction. And uh, I don't know, I thought there was, for me, that one was kind of pulling out my attention. So I'm going to probably go that way. And maybe uh, some kind of theme like um, he lives to never leave me, something like that. Just the, the whole, and for me too, I think it's personal. There's been a couple of really, really tough situations in our in our church here with a few members that like just people a marriage just abruptly ending and uh, another guy that I mean, he just came in today and his, his girlfriend that he was not married to, but you know, he's living with and they had a daughter has totally just like not allowed him to see his daughter anymore. And it, I mean, he was crushed and like this just happened this week. 
And like, there's, so there's people sitting out there in my church this week that I think that message will really be a good one this week. And then next year you want to preach on it. You could do a whole different direction, I guess. So there you go. Well, and if you want to use a little orphan Annie illustration, you can. That's, I might pull that in. I've never actually seen it. So yeah, that's what I figured. You're a little I'm young for that. So I'm, I'm behind on that, I guess. <laughs> uh, Jeremy, you have anything else you want to add to this text? I don't want to add to God's word, no. All right. Good answer. I was testing <laughs> you on that. Uh, you want to get into the next, uh, the next lesson then? Yes. This is from 1 Peter 3, beginning with verse 13. Who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you should happen to suffer because of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of what they fear and do not be troubled, but regard the Lord, the Christ, as holy in your hearts. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. But speak with gentleness and respect while maintaining a clear conscience so that those who attack your good way of life in Christ may be put to shame because they slandered you as evildoers. Indeed, it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, because Christ also suffered once for sins in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in flesh, but was made alive in spirit, in which he also went and made an announcement to the spirits in prison. These spirits disobeyed long ago when God's patience was waiting in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In this ark, a few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the guarantee of a good conscience before God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He went to heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. So, Jeremy, uh, we've been hearing uh, throughout this Easter season a number of selections from First Peter as he's writing to Christians who are being persecuted. So how should we deal with fear in the face of persecution and why? Uh, what verse are you looking at? Uh, the second half of verse 14. Okay. So, um, well, it was just this past Sunday that I was in a church where the sermon said over and over uh, that we should not let our hearts be troubled. And uh, there are lots of things that can trouble our hearts that uh, stir them up like a storm stirs up uh, Lake Michigan. And uh, that just like Jesus can calm the storms, um, he, he also calms our our troubled hearts and it's not that there aren't any troubles or that they're not real troubles it's just that uh, we can always be confident that he settles them down so with that jeremy uh you know you were in our church on sunday what was so special for you and your family this sunday <clears throat> that our second born son got confirmed and and started to take communion yeah and you know that's as for, you know, it was a blessing to be able up be up there for uh, confirming uh, eight of our confirmands, Micah, your son being one of them. It was interesting too with that, like you said, uh, taking communion for the first time. One of our families uh, that was confirmed this last week, the mom was telling me at the party that 
this coming Sunday uh, at another church is going to be the baptism of her nephew, but uh, her three children, the youngest one was the one that was confirmed. Uh, they all said, we're going to water of life for the early service. so We can all take communion together for the first time. Then we'll go up to the other church so we can have church again for the baptism. So that's pretty, pretty neat. She was pretty proud of her teenagers wanting to get up early and going to church and then, but especially wanting to commune together for the first time. And then I think it's interesting to go to be able to celebrate the other sacrament at another church. Uh, so Eric, who will ask us the questions that we should be prepared to answer? Yeah, I had to think about that one for a bit. Um, I think that the context here, right, is really talking about probably those who might want to challenge us or persecute us. That's the that's the context that I'm getting here, right? Um, and then it even goes on to say to do it with gentleness and respect. Um, and then talks about people speaking maliciously against your good behavior. So I, I think here it's mostly talking about those who are maybe going to challenge you in your faith. Although I think I think it also broadly applies to uh anyone. I mean, anyone could ask you. Maybe it's even someone who's wondering, or again, they they see you behaving a certain way, even in a hard time in life or having hope in a time when most people wouldn't. And uh they might ask you, Well, why are you like this? How do you have so much hope? And so there's maybe a negative or a positive way that people could ask it of you. Yeah. And yeah, so the unbelieving world is going to be able to see us when we suffer, as Peter says, and they're going to ask us for the reason, for the hope that we have. So then, Jeremy, what makes us prepared to give an answer? This is actually uh, one of the books that I teach for the junior religion class here at Shoreland, First Peter. And um, I was really happy that that's in their curriculum here at Shoreland, because this is my favorite book of the Bible. And this is possibly my favorite chapter of my favorite book and my favorite section of that, my favorite chapter of my favorite book. And whenever I teach this um, and I talk about being prepared to answer, I say this is a courtroom term that you've, you've prepared a defense. But before you de prepare defense, you need to do research. And the way that you do research is by listening. In interpersonal relationships, it's by listening we, we cannot overemphasize this enough that you must listen to what people are saying before you, you uh, try to answer their objections. Because whatever their objection might be, like, you know, you're talking, we're talking about atheists before, and uh, almost invariably, people who flat out deny the existence of God, they, they, they don't do it. They didn't reach that on an intellectual level. Nine times out of 10 or even more than that, um, they it happened because of something personal in their life. And they use all kinds of intellectual arguments to try and uh, put up those guards or uh, protect themselves from the vulnerability. But it's, it's listening, 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 listening. Uh, that is the only way that you're going to be able to give uh be prepared to give a get a give a good response yeah i like that and then i think it's two parts and you're you're talking about listening to the people and then i would add obviously we have to listen to god's word we have to be in god's words so that we 
have an answer for them because if we absent ourselves from God's word, we're not going to be educated enough, even though we might be very good listeners to the people, we may not be able to then give an answer. Let's go on to toward the end of the verses. So I want to talk about uh, the Christ descent into hell. So then, Eric, what was Jesus doing with his descent into hell? And the reason I wanted to focus on this, not to, you know, there's other really good verses of of uh, Jeremy's favorite book there, but this is one of the only sections in Scripture that talks about the descent into hell. So what's what's going on here? Uh, plain and simple, it's the victory lap. Um, not not more suffering. And there, I think this is where in catechism class, right, you start dividing it. This is part of the exaltation rather than the humiliation, which seems seems backwards. But uh, yeah, the the Bible, the few places it talks about it, sounds like it's a it's a um, announcement of victory to the devil. Yeah, you want to say anything more on that, Jeremy? Since you love this, yeah, it's so easily misunderstood, especially the way that we say it in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, which I always like to point out to the kids that there there was no punctuation in the original Greek of the Apostles' Creed. So when they said he descended into hell the third day, he rose again from the dead. That could just as easily be tagging on the descent into the third day. And the rose from the dead part is more so not that he came alive, but that his disciples saw him after he exited the grave bodily. Um, so it, and I think we do need to spend more time hammering this because I, I've had, you know, uh, students in catechism classes from previous uh, places of service where the, they come from a non-denominational or megachurch background. And then they will say, why do Lutherans believe that Jesus died and went to hell? And I, I have to say, no, that's not what we believe. It, that's, it might sound like that, but that's not officially what the Bible says. Um, it's, it's a great, I think it's a great comfort to be reminded that Jesus, the first thing he did when we fell into sin was confront Satan. And then the first thing he did when he redeemed us from sin was confront Satan. Yeah. Yeah. And for our listeners too, is to remind them then, like you said, with the apostles creed, Jesus, when he died, his spirit went to heaven. And then his soul, but his body remained in the tomb. And then uh, Easter Sunday, as soon as he was resurrected, he descended into hell and then preached to the spirits that were there, not to give them a second chance to come out of hell, but to say, like Eric said, this is his victory lap. I, uh, I went up against the devil and I defeated him. I won. And now then he shows himself to Mary Magdalene and to the women and to the disciples. So it was a very busy Easter Sunday. Uh, with this next one too, I want, I'll talk about this one because uh, in an hour or so, I'm going to be talking to four families or uh, four, four people, two families about baptism. Uh, it was pretty, pretty interesting how this all got set up was, one of our new confirmands, adult confirmands from three weeks ago, it's his sister and her husband and his brother and his wife uh, that are meeting to talk about baptism and do a Bible study with me. And I use these verses to talk about baptism where uh, Peter makes a comparison 
in this ark a few, that's eight souls, were saved by water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the guarantee of a good conscience before God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what he's talking about there is making the connection that, just like the flood, drowned the the unbelieving world in the waters of the flood, then it also lifted up the eight people and kept them safe in the ark. And in the same way, the waters of baptism for the the three children that Lord willing I'll be baptizing soon after our Bible study tonight, that it will drown their sinful nature, but then lift them up and keep them safe in the holy ark of the Christian church. If you guys want to add anything more to that, imagery that peter has i know i said it well it's kind of like yeah like i think i've talked about that one before of how it's almost like we're tied into the timeline of jesus and our baptisms into his death his resurrection kind of a fun way to say it i also stress that uh, on a side note this is one of the reasons people will say that why there are eight sides to a baptismal font because of the eight people in the ark Uh, Or because baptism is tied to a new creation, the eighth day after God created everything and then rested, the eighth day is a new day. Or that uh, eight sides is a lot easier to create than six or seven sides for baptismal font. That makes sense, too. But it also ties us into the Paschal candle. We have one of those. Well, we have one at each of our campuses for Water of Life. And that Paschal candle that's lit during the season of Easter for funerals and for baptisms because it connects us to Christ's death and resurrection in the waters of baptism. So then, Eric, what does it mean that baptism is a pledge of a good conscience toward God? Uh, I see that as really referring to forgiveness. Um, That's something we get, one of the gifts we get in baptism. I mean, this is completely a, thing of grace because i i mean really i should not be able to have a good conscience toward god i like i know i know i've disobeyed him i know i've broken his laws but baptism says otherwise like i've got that pledge of a good conscience that i'm, I'm clean with him I'm, I'm good with him because of what jesus has done it's a powerful image yeah when i baptized older children i I've, oftentimes the next sunday i'll ask them so did you sin this this past week because you were baptized they go, no, I was I was good pastor. Well, they really weren't. But I'm trying to remind them of this. You're still going to be a sinner, but now you have a clean conscience uh, that your sins are washed away every time you come back to the baptismal font in confession and repentance and absolution. So last question I have, Jeremy, is this whole letter that peter has is about suffering and the section is about suffering so how do how do peter's words here and throughout this epistle inspire us as christians to trust in christ despite the suffering we're going through right now a big theme of uh, first peter is that we are different that we stand out um we are odd in the, when you're a believer in Jesus, you are an oddball on this earth. And uh, that is also true when it comes to suffering. The thing with um, everybody everybody in the secular realm is that um, 
suffering is bad and we want to get rid of it and we want to make it as short as possible and um, avoid it if at all possible. And it's not that we're, um, what do you call it, sadistic as Christians. We don't go looking for it, but um, it is something that, um, well, it's, it, the, the Bible talks about it like making us like unto Christ, that we're, that uh, it's a noble thing just as he suffered, that we also get to suffer, uh, even if it's in a small, insignificant way. Um, certainly not a way that uh, justifies us at all, but uh, a way that at least makes solidarity. It shows unity between us and our Lord. Very good. Eric, you have anything else you want to add to anything we discussed today? No, no, I'm really thankful for the discussion. I think that was a good summary of two, I think, two texts that have a lot in them, kind of almost too much in them to to, to take all at once. But uh, yeah, thanks for working through that. That was, I think I'm a little more ready for my sermon now. So all that's right. good. All right, we'll wrap it up here. This is Michael Zarling with Eric Melzo and Hit the Lightnings. That's by Metallica, Jeremy. Uh, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>